1 Corinthians chapter 8, page 1149. And we are coming back to 1 Corinthians, having had a break over Christmas. Um, Really the way 1 Corinthians works is um, chapters 1 to 4 was all that stuff about trying to be impressive, uh, wisdom, trying to look impressive to the world, trying to impress the world. Don't do that, Paul says. The cross is foolishness, it's weakness. Don't, Don't try to impress the world. That was chapters 1 to 4. Chapters 5, 6 and 7 was what we were doing just before Christmas. That was about this this wrong view of freedom, particularly in the area of sexuality, where basically the church was running wild. Their, their whole understanding of sexuality and freedom was completely out of control. And Paul was teaching them and putting them back in order. And we saw how, um, how, how Paul was teaching them through that. But in, in chapter 8, the subject changes again. Uh, so if you just look at chapter 8, verse 1, Paul writes, Now, about food sacrificed to idols... I didn't have a particularly hard time showing you that sexuality was something that's relevant to us. I think we may have our work cut out with food sacrificed to idols. So why don't we pray together that God would help us to see why this really, really matters to us today in London. And let's ask that he would speak to us from his precious word. Let's pray. Father, what a precious thing it is to have your word open in front of us. Lord, forgive us that we would take that for granted. And Father, we pray that you would teach us from your words. Father, please, would this word live to us by your spirit. Would you show us and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Wonderful. Well, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then we'll dig into it together. Now, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. 
Okay, this question of idols uh, actually takes up all of chapters 8, 9, and 10. So this is going to be the next few weeks for us. So we better get our heads into gear around what is going on here. And I don't know if you've got friends who you ask them a very, very simple question. It really only needs one word answer, and they give you a very long answer. I guess lots of us know people like that. I'm fairly sure that Paul could have given them a one-word answer to this question of food sacrifice to idols. One word. There is a very clear and simple answer. In those days, idolatry was a big deal and the sacrificing of food to idols was part of everyday life. Eating meals, it wasn't like some random weird, oh, that's a bit weird. It was just just what everybody did. It was part of society and therefore it was a huge issue. There's a very easy answer. I can answer the question in one word. Don't. That's it. That's all Paul needed to say. About eating food sacrificed to idols, don't. Right, next. Now you may say, no, John, how do you know that? I know that because the, ca- because the early church got together and discussed it and came up with an answer. So keep a finger in 1 Corinthians. Go to Acts 15. Go to Acts 15. And when the first Gentiles started becoming Christians, they had this big council to try and work out what are we going to do with the Gentiles? What are the things they have to do and don't do? How do we decide? Do they have to become Jews or not? And they wrote them this letter and they said, this is what we've decided. You don't have to worry about all the details. But just look at verse 29 of Acts 15. Here it is. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Right? It's very clear. You're not to eat food sacrificed to idols. So the church has got together. They've got a policy on this one. It's not a difficult question. This is not a controversial question. Paul, shall we eat food sacrificed to idols? Let me check the documents. No. Right? It's simple. Don't eat it. But Paul takes three chapters to answer that question. Effectively to say don't. And the reason is because Paul sees a much bigger issue lurking in the background. And if you think that food sacrifice to idols is slightly irrelevant and away from us, the issue that Paul has in mind is right in our hearts. Absolutely central to our experience of life. And what Paul does is he sets his sights on the dangerous and deadly attitudes. And like a great doctor, he doesn't simply treat the rash, he treats the problem in the heart. That's what I want to try and show you is going on. So look at verse 1 with me again. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Now it's very likely, and the reason it's in quotation marks, is that Paul is um, quoting them. It's one of the things they like to say. The Corinthian church, oh yeah, yeah, we all possess knowledge. We already know they're quite full of themselves as a church. They love to show off. They love to be impressive. Yeah, yeah, we all possess knowledge. And knowledge matters to this church. It's like knowledge is the currency that this church operates with. Your value is determined by how much you know. The more knowledge you have, the more buying power you have in the church. Knowledge really matters. 
And that idea, I think that's quite an interesting idea, this idea of knowledge as a currency that gets you stuff within the church. That is what Paul is attacking. It's a devastating attack on the church as Paul answers their question. Here's the thing, right? In the church in Corinth, there are two groups. And we could call them the no-much and the no-littles. They're like two families, the no-muches and the no-littles. So here's Mr. No-much, okay? Let me introduce you to him. He's read a lot of books. He loves reading books. He knows a lot of stuff. He loves a good argument. He loves a good debate. He loves to know stuff. It feels really good to him. He has a bank account that is bursting at the seams with knowledge, the currency of the day. Here are three things, right, that the, that the no-muches really love. And perhaps some of us this afternoon, if we're honest, will say, I think Mr. No-much might be my great-great-great-great-granddad. Here are three things the no-much, no-muches really love. They love nodders. When people nod as they speak, they say something and they're looking to see, is anyone nodding? They love that. That's, that's a really good feeling. Like the best present for them is one of those Churchill dogs that they could just have on their desk who all day just sits and nods at them. Because they love it. It feeds them. They love it when people ask them for advice, when people flatter them and tell them that they're great. Now, of course, some people's nods are of greater value than other people's nods. Because if another no-much nods, that's like double points for the nodding scale. They love nodders. And they say stuff and they're looking to see who's responding. That's the first thing. They also love invitations. They love to be invited to do stuff. It gives them a real buzz. Oh, you've asked me. Huh, well. It irritates them when someone else gets asked to do something instead of them. But all it does is drive them to try and get more knowledge to fill up their bank account a bit more so that next time it's them that's asked. They love invitations. And the third thing is they love point scoring. They love to show how much they know. So they could listen, Mr. Nomuch can listen to a 30-minute sermon and at the end of it can say, actually, Levi's third son was called Merari. Because they love to show that they know. And they listen with their antennae up. And if they hear something that's wrong, they go, he's wrong. And they're there flicking through the Bible. I'm sure he's wrong. I'm sure he's... Yes, he's wrong. He's wrong. (coughs) Super. Make that a note. Just spot the slightest mistake. Now, if you could dissect a Mr. No-Much, if you could cut a Mr. No-Much open, what what, what you would find within him is an ego that is getting fatter and fatter. With every compliment that he receives, every piece of knowledge he gains, every Greek word he understands the meaning of, every piece of doctrine he understands, the ego is feasting. Getting fatter and fatter. I don't mean to be rude, but I think it was 1483 that Luther was born. There's another meal, another morsel for ego. 
It all revolves around knowledge. Knowledge is the currency. Knowledge gives power and position. But there is another family within the church. And they are the no-littles. They're quite new to church. And they are actually pretty poor when it comes to knowledge. Their bank accounts are low. And they are scared of making a mistake. They feel intimidated. They don't really feel like they belong because everybody else seems to know so much and they just don't know anything. They sit at the back. They stay quiet while the know-muches strut their stuff. But they do aspire to know more. They want to know more. They think, I'm going to have to get to know some stuff. I wish I knew more about the Bible. This is what the know-littles say. I wish I could quote the Bible like that person can. I wish people nodded when I spoke. And then one day it happened. They get their first ever nod. I think he nodded. And it's like a drug to them. It's like he nodded. Because that's the first scrap that their ego goes, and their ego's off and running. This is what Paul is seeing in the church. There is a deep problem here because if that is what our church is like, it will be a brutal place to be a Christian. Knowledge is a brutal currency to build a church on. Look, seriously, I do not imagine that the church in Corinth was a fun place to be. You'd be jumped on if you got something wrong. The moment you said something wrong, you could feel like everybody going... so wrong and look what Paul says then in chapter 8 verse 1 we all possess knowledge this is the thing that you crave this is your currency but knowledge puffs up while love builds up those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know but whoever loves God is known by God. It's crystal clear. You cannot miss the point. This is a strong warning to the no-muches. You think you know something. Can't you tell? Can't you even hear in the way that Paul says, you who think you know something? Here they are, strutting their stuff, heads held high, look at me, look at me. Paul says, you think you know something? You got it so wrong. The knowledge you have is bad knowledge. You've missed the point of knowing. Knowing stuff is not the goal. Knowing stuff is not the end point. Knowing stuff is not the currency. The goal is love. Love is the currency that the church operates on. Not knowledge. Knowledge puffs you up and makes your ego grow fatter and fatter. But love builds others up and makes them grow stronger and stronger. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Change your currency, Paul says. Change your value system. God is not impressed by how much you know. He delights in how much you love. I think this is a massive lesson for us as a church. Because it's only in love that knowledge really finds its place. 
if you starve the ego and feed someone else instead, if you treat one another on the basis not of how much you know, but on the basis of how much you love, the whole church is transformed. Do you know, there is a beautiful description of Jesus written, I don't know, hundreds of years before he was born in Isaiah 42. This is how Jesus, listen to this. This is how Jesus is described. Isaiah 42 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Do you see how different that is? Do you see how different that is to the harsh, brutal destruction of one another with knowledge? I mean, a bruised reed wouldn't last five minutes in Corinth. <laughs> Look at him, he's so weak. Not five minutes in that church. Crushed and trampled underfoot as the no-muches show off their knowledge. But Jesus took the no-littles. Jesus took the weak and the bruised people and he was gentle. He healed them. He did not crush them but he nursed them back to life. This is Jesus. This is our King. This is the head of our church. This is the Lord. God sees what you do with a bruised reed and a smouldering wick. We want to present to God a bank account bursting with knowledge. Look, God! And God says, let's look at your bank account bursting with love. Let's see what's in there. So that's kind of the big issue and we're going to see that unpacked. This challenge to the no-muches to stop trading in knowledge and to start trading in love. And then in verse 4, having set out that big principle, he comes back to this issue of idols. Okay, fine, let's go back to idols. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. And verses 4 to 6 show us, this is my uh, first big point, and I was accused earlier that this was an obvious thing to say, and it's true, it's an obvious point. But that's okay, because we're no littles. (laughs) It's good to know about God. If you weren't sure about that, let me make that clear. When Paul attacks knowledge, he is not dismissing knowledge completely, It's good to know about God. That's what he says in verses 4 to 6. So look at verses 4 to 6 with me. Paul's not anti-knowledge. Absolutely not. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. Paul says we know that. It's, It's clear. We understand that. We know that these idols that the culture worships, we know that this this kind of pagan ritual of eating food in worship to idols, we know that doesn't mean anything because the idols aren't real. There is no idol. There is no other God. These guys have got their theology very clear. Idols are nothing. There's only one God. He is the source. So look, look what we're told about him. I love this. I mean, this is a fantastic summary of God, isn't it? Look for verse 6. Yet for us, so he says, even if there are so-called gods, you know, even if people are talking about other gods, and you know, people do talk about other gods, 
Verse 6, this is what we know. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Here is this great statement, this terrific doctrinal statement of truth, of fantastic theology stuff that we know. There's one God, he is the source of all things, from whom all things came. Do you know that? Do you know that there's one God who is the creator of all things? All things come from him, the Father. All things come from him. We know that, Paul says. From whom all things came and for whom we live. The goal of life, the source of life is God and the goal of life is God. We live for him. We're created for his glory. We're created to bring him glory. Our lives are to be directed towards him. Paul says we know that. And we know that there's only one Lord Jesus Christ. That the only way to know God and to live for God is through the means of Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. All things come from God through Jesus Christ. How did God create the universe? Through Jesus. This is good theology. Nothing wrong here. Absolutely true. You need to know this. Know that all things were created by God and they were created through Jesus Christ. And know that you were created for God and the only way to live for God is to live through Jesus Christ. So here is what you need to know. To know about God is good. This is good knowledge. That's good knowledge. Right? It's good to know that stuff. All other rivals in our world are wrong. None of them stands. None of them lasts. None of them counts. And on the basis of that, eating food to sacrifice to an idol is not a problem at all. (laughs) Why would it be? Because they're nothing. If knowledge is ultimate, and if knowledge is the currency under which we operate, then we celebrate our freedom, we stop there, and we whip down to Diana's temple for a knees up. Right? And we feel good about it as we go. Look how free I am. Look how liberated I am. And all the while my ego gets fatter and fatter and fatter. But after Paul makes this staggering knowledge statement of verse 6, look at the next word in verse 7. He kind of got, it's like he's a preacher who's got himself all wound up with, we know that we're from God and for God, and it's through Christ and it's through him we live. But, and here's my second point. Verses 7 to 13 say, it's good to know about God, but it's better to love like Christ. That's what he's going to go on to show. But, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to God, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Here are the no-littles, right? They, they, they come to know Jesus, they're trusting Jesus, but they're still, they're still not quite clear. They're, they're, they're confused. It's not as sharp for them. They don't know this. They believe that Jesus died for them, but they still feel a sense that it would be wrong to go to a temple. That just feels wrong. Right, at this point, I thought I might try and bring it to life for you with a dramatic performance of an imagined conversation. I'm doubting the wisdom of that decision, but I'm going to go for it anyway. 
It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to imagine a conversation between Mr. No Much and Mr. No Little. Okay. And I'm going to represent the two by changing hats so that you know which one I am. This is Mr. No Much. This, and I'm not saying anything about Tottenham fans, is Mr. No Little. <laughs> right, let's see how this goes. Right, where are we even up to? There we are. Here we go. <laughs> this was such a good idea. I'm sitting at my desk. This was such a brilliant idea. I'm not sure about this eating food sacrificed to idols. It just doesn't seem right. Don't be so ridiculous. Of course it's right. Think, how, how could you even... That you're just being so ridiculous. Well, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure because it... I don't know because I, I used to eat there but I don't want to do that anymore because now I follow Jesus. Oh, come on, the idols are nothing. It doesn't matter anymore. Who cares about the idols? It doesn't... Just come on, it doesn't matter. But it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. Oh, you and your feelings, it's ridiculous. You need to get some knowledge. I know everything. I know... Oh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> it was such a good idea in my head. But do you see the point, right? Here is the... Of course you do. It's all brought it to life. Here is how it works in the church. You have this battle and you have the no-muches who are saying to the no-littles, do you see how brutal it is? You're so stupid. How could you think like that? What a pathetic Christian you are. Don't you even know? And it's brutal. I've got a PhD in the oneness of God. We'll be fine. Just do it. And you can see how dangerous this is. Knowledge says it's fine. Go ahead and eat. Don't worry about it. Fill your boots and don't let anyone criticize you. Love says, no, for the sake of others, I won't eat. Look at others in the church. Knowledge is big into my rights. And then the weak join you in something that they should not do and they are destroyed. So have a look just to how Paul argues this. So he says, not everyone knows this stuff. They still think of this sacrificial food as in somehow being related to this idol. But verse 8, but food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not and no better if we do. Paul says, I know that. I know that food makes no difference to to us. Verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Do you see? By your obsession with knowledge and your arrogance, the weak one is crushed. And this bruised reed is destroyed. I know that my illustration brought it to life magically, but um, let me give you another illustration to try and help you understand this. Let's, let's talk skiing. I'm not very good at skiing. I have never been skiing in my life. So I, don't, I might be really good at skiing. I just have never had a go. Imagine you are amazing at skiing. You are the best skier in the world. 
And, uh, you know, you're, you're on all the black runs. Black runs? I feel nervous. I'm in dangerous language. On the black runs, even off-piste. And, uh, you know, you're, you, just, you, you just know what you're doing. You know the mountains like the back of your hand. Okay? And then along comes little old me. And I'm there with my skis, like this. And you say, hey, come with me. Can we go down this one? It looks very gentle. Can we go on this one? No, 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 no. You're so pathetic. You're so rubbish. Real men go down this one. Oh, well, I want to be a real man. I don't want to be a little man. Okay, coming with you. Here I come. Right? You got it? And the arrogance of this person leads me off down a black run where I fall and break my neck and die. It's a sad story. I should have warned you. (laughs) You see, here it is, right? The brutality of someone who's so arrogant that they think they know that they pull the weak along with them and lead them to places that actually they shouldn't take them to. That's what's going on in this church. What should the expert skier have said? They should have said, fine, we'll go down this little slope together. Let's go down here. And not, right, careful with this, because you can still be in no much and do that, not saying, okay, let's go down this little slope, look at me, look how cool I am, down this rubbish slope. But actually he said, listen, for your sake, I'll never go on a black run again if it means that I keep you safe. You see? It costs them something. They say, I'll give up everything if it means keeping you safe. That's what Paul is arguing here. And look at verse 11. This is the crux of it. Okay, this is, this is why this matters so much. Verse 11. So this weak brother or sister, this no little, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. I want you to understand... Here is what is at stake. Here is why we must get rid of knowledge as the currency on which we operate as a church. Because this no little, this weakest, this newest person, here is someone for whom Christ died. This fragile, bruised, smoldering weakness Christ died for them. He loves them so much that he gave his life. And then along come Mr. No Much with his arrogance and he just squishes them under his feet as he tramples through to show off how great he is. Can you not see how deadly this is in a church? How wicked this is? This precious child for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge as you trample all over them. This is how Christ loves. Jesus did not come to fill our heads with knowledge. Jesus never looked at the crowd and said, who's nodding? Jesus never performed for the nodders. Never. He wasn't trying to win approval. He didn't get a rush when someone said to him, wow, what a great sermon. It was actually pretty good. 
Jesus was not interested in getting invited to speak at the big events. He wasn't trying to get recognized. He wasn't trying to establish himself as the leading expert in the world on God stuff. He came as a king to command us to follow him. Jesus was not interested in scoring points. Not interested in cheap shots. Not interested in trying to show how much cleverer he was than his enemies. Jesus was interested in seeking out the weak and the bruised and gently building them up. He starved his ego to feed his sheep. Wow, I wish we could see this. Over and over again, Jesus said no to his ego that was going... Feed me, feed me, feed me. Over and over again, Jesus said, no, 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 not my will, but yours be done. I will go to a cross, I will lay down my life, and I will starve myself in order that I can feed my weak, bruised, pitiful people. And if you are sitting here this afternoon and you are a Christian, you have to know, it doesn't matter how much you know, I don't care if you've got six PhDs. You are a no-little for whom Christ laid down his life. You are a bruised, broken reed who Jesus could have trampled and thrown away, but instead he picked you up out of the dust and the dirt. And anything that you know, anything that you know, is a precious gift from him. Not something that you can arrogantly use to stamp on other people. And so Paul says it's actually very simple. Don't eat. Don't do it. Because you will destroy the weaker brother, sister. Do you see how Paul gets the same conclusion? It's the same thing. I will not eat meat. Why did they say in the early church in Acts 15, don't eat food sacrificed to idols? I think it was because of exactly this reason. It wasn't because in Acts 15 they were like, oh, they were a bit fuzzy on the knowledge stuff. It was because they knew this. They just said it slightly quicker. And Paul wants to show what lies behind it. Now, not many of us are into eating food sacrificed to idols. But can I give you some really practical ways that I think we do this? This general principle, how can I use the knowledge that God has given me to build someone else up? Can I say, can we be a church that refuses to engage in what is called banter, but is actually really pretty cruel and cutting? Now, I'm all for having a bit of a laugh, right? I'm not saying we can, I'm not saying that there's, 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 good banter where we can have a bit of fun, we poke fun at one another, that's fine. But there is a line that we cross when we put others down, when we belittle people, when we sort of mock people because they get stuff wrong. Can you imagine what sort of a church we'd be if, if someone got something wrong and it didn't matter? That we could help each other? Not that it doesn't matter that we go, oh, it doesn't matter that they don't believe in Jesus. It, that, that matters, right? But that we love each other, not to crush but to build. So I starve my ego. All the time I say, I'll starve my ego in order to build my sister up. How can I help them? How can I use my knowledge to help, to build, not to feed myself? I've got to com- I, I confess, there is one person in this church 
who is probably more guilty of this than anyone else. And that's me. I felt massively convicted by this this week. I think I show off all the time. I love people to think that I'm impressive and clever. And it's wrong. And I want to repent of it. And I want you to help me to repent of it. I want us to be a church where actually what we do with knowledge is we drive towards love. And if what we're saying is not loving, it's not true. It's not right. We've got to work at this. I think there are costly ways that we can show this to one another, where we can kill our own ego. You know, perhaps it's around all sorts of practical things, like ways that we treat one another in terms of, you know, we're going out to the cinema, let's all go and watch a film together, and we say to someone, hey, come along and watch this film, and they say, oh, actually, I'd, I'd rather not, I, I feel a bit bad about watching that. What do you do at that point? You know, if I, well, let's, go and see the, let's go and see a different film. Let's go and watch something else. And actually, let's learn from one another on that. Do you see? I, I want you to think. I want you to think about the way that we pursue knowledge and the way that we hunger for knowledge. And you may be saying, but it's not a problem for me. Why shouldn't I go and watch a film? Because it's a problem for someone else. And because you may lead someone along the path down a black run into their destruction. What does this look like? How do we apply this? How do we push this through? And I, I, I guess the, the way, place I want to end is, imagine a church where where we really got this, where the currency we operated on was love. Imagine what a difference that would make. Actually, we said, how can I love you? What's the most loving thing? How can I see you built up? And rather than pushing ourselves forward, wanting to get invited all the time, we're, instead we're suggesting to people, hey, why don't you ask so-and-so? They'd never get asked to do stuff, and they're terrific. They, can we tr- can, why don't you ask them to have a go? You see, pushing others forward, pushing others ahead. Starving the ego. We all have an ego, and it needs starving. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see more of what that looks like. But I hope today it kind of whets our appetite. And above all, I want to point you to Jesus, the bruised reed mender. And to those of you who feel like bruised reeds this afternoon, Jesus came to heal you. And to those of you who don't feel like bruised reeds this afternoon, you are. And you need to recapture that because otherwise you'll become arrogant and proud. So why don't we pray together, and then we're going to sing um, and celebrate communion together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus did not come to promote himself. He did not come to flatter his own ego. He did not come to puff himself up, but instead he starved his ego in order that he might go to a cross and build up us, that he might take the bruised and broken things of this world, the things that are not, and that he might breathe life, life into us. Oh, we pray that we might know that wonderful love of Jesus together as a church family. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.